Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Ask Me Anything About Employment with Len Statham. My name is David Blair, and I'll be your moderator today. This webinar is not a pre but an interactive question and answer period. For the next hour, Len will take any questions you have related to employment activation. Let's get started. So the employment unemployment rate uh, is not our biggest problem. It's the lack of participation in the workforce. Today, we will have an honest conversation about what we need to do as a community to change this unsettling dynamic. This Ask Me Anything topic is a call to arms to empower both providers and individuals uh, with lived experience to begin the conversation to have. In particular, why are we settling only for public benefits and how can we activate individuals towards employment? Len Statham is the Director of Employment and Economic Self-Sufficiency Initiatives with the New York Association of Psychiatric Rehabilitation Services. He has worked uh, with the mental with people with mental health and substance use issues for more than 20 years, promoting recovery-focused services and service provision. Combining his clinical and vocational background, Mr. Statham provides training and technical assistance about employment services and the capabilities of people with behavioral health issues to providers and to people in recovery across New York State and nationally. He has helped facilitate the adoption of the individual placement and support model of supported employment statewide in Utah, New Jersey, Wisconsin, and Colorado. That's a, quite a number of states there, Lynn. Uh, Mr. Statham also works at the national level on SAMHSA's Bright, uh, bringing recovery support to scale technical assistance center strategy initiatives, as well as uh, Boston University Center for Psychiatric Rehabilitation. Additionally, Len has previously provided training for the National Development and Research Institute's Addiction Technology Transfer Center, uh, ATTC, for projects in New York and New Jersey. Today's event is jointly funded by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, and the Center for Mental Health Services within the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. The content of this webinar does not represent the views or policies of the funding agencies, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. During registration for the event, you are given the opportunity to submit questions in advance. Over the course of the webinar, we will alternate between questions submitted in advance and the ones you have today. So hopefully we can have a lively conversation. Uh, you may ask questions now by typing them into the chat box or by letting you know you'd like to ask it by phone and then you can have a conversation uh, with Len. So welcome to the webinar and I hope you enjoy the next hour. Uh, Len, uh, we're gonna start with some of the questions that were actually in the announcement uh, that went out for this event because I think they're a great starting place. And, and let's start with the, the top of the line one, which is why are we settling for public benefits and how can we activate individuals towards employment. Thank you, David, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, good morning to you folks on the West Coast. So that question is a question that I get asked quite a bit, and the biggest problem that we're having is we're not targeting a lot of our approaches uh, to people that have said no to employment. In other words, we have uh, IPS, which is Individual Placement and Support, and that is an evidence-based practice that is a very good practice, and it's been researched uh, to death, really. It's been uh, across disabilities, many, many different countries, and um, it's the model by which people with disabilities can obtain employment. The problem is that that um, is for the population that have already raised their hand. And so there's a great number of folks that um, are not raising their hand and saying, yes, 
I want employment. And David, I'm, I'm wondering if you might just um, bring up our only graphic because that will really uh, give some data to support what I'm saying. So these were the labor participation rates um, according to the Office of Disability Employment, which is a federal agency that uh, takes a look at uh, labor po po uh, policy. And um, you can see that uh, in the red, uh, uh, with unemployment rate for people with disabilities is, is actually 8.5%, twice as much as the general population, which isn't good. Um, and we, we spend a lot of time on that 8.5 population. However, um, if you look at the labor force participation, that is those folks that are not raising their hand and being um, looking for work actively, um, the general population is usually around that 69%. Um, we've had it as low as 65 at times, but it's between 65 and 70%. Uh, but people with disabilities is an abysmal 20.2%. And so that leaves us with about 80% of people with disabilities that are actually not in the workforce. And that is what we really need to start paying attention to um, and helping people to um, to start changing their minds about employment. Now, for the longest time, I have made the mistake of going about engaging people around employment in this way. I would tell them about how great employment is and how wonderful it is and how it gives them self-esteem and how it gives them a sense of, of uh, purpose, on and on and on. But I soon realized that that technique is, was actually counterproductive, meaning that what I was saying to folks about employment had no place inside of the folks that I was talking to to really resonate because their their experience was much different. Their experience was um, maybe discrimination in the workforce, maybe not being able to get along with supervisors or coworkers, maybe being fired three or four times. So what I was selling wasn't penetrating their own experience. And people will pay more attention to their own experience than what I was trying to sell. And so we really need to come up with a different way to, to speak with folks who have had some challenging experiences in the employment sector. You know, I, I think that introduction that you there leads right into the very next question that was is proposed, which are what are some of the strategies we can use to help people move past the fear of losing their benefits when returning to work? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do is we we need to um, sort of dispel some of the myths about going back to work. And I think uh, there's a, a question in the chat box uh, with Michael. Michael Wall um, sort of dovetails this, which is, you know, the numbers, uh, uh, do you think that these numbers can also be as low as people are afraid to disclose that they have a disability? I think that um, there's a couple things. Number one, again, the, the work, um, uh, explaining the work incentives in a way that resonates with people. Um, and uh, one way to do that is to um, really go into a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, put a lot of effort into um, talking about work incentives. However, I have been to a huge number of work incentive uh, trainings. Um, I'm a certified benefits counselor, so I'm, I'm very um, um, knowledgeable in that area. But what I find is that people get way too much information, and that information is actually counterproductive. It's, um, it's way too much for people to absorb. They just need a, a decent amount of information to know and feel safe that they're not going to lose um, their benefit. And I think um, talking, about, um, it, talking about areas 
that affect our life is probably the second method that I, I would use. In other words, as I mentioned, we're, when I was sort of the cheerleader for employment, um, I was talking about my own experience and how great work was. Instead of asking about what are the things that are happening in your life that um, are because you're unemployed. And really, honestly, having difficult and honest conversations with people that make people a little bit uncomfortable. And um, not to say that, you know, we're, we really want to get down on, pe on, on people that are now working, but there needs to be a sense of uncomfortableness, um, a sense of dissatisfaction, because um, anybody familiar with psych rehab knows that people move and make change when their level of dissatisfaction is, is high. And so talking about things like unemployment and how it affects their life and poverty and how it impacts their life is really the gateway to talking about employment as a possibility of uh, making people feel a little bit more comfortable. Yeah, to, to Michael's uh, question, I, I do think that there are folks that are um, uh, timid and have been timid about disclosing their disability. And, and I, think that's, I think that can be true of, uh, in many cases. However, we are in right now a, uh, an employee market. People are desperate to hire, and so uh, people's disabilities are less and less a factor. But when you yeah, mentioned a second ago, you'd mentioned how you're probing into you know things that make people uncomfortable as as a a way to help bring about that change. Are you helping them identify things that they are, themselves are already aware of and bringing that out? Or are you pointing out new things to them that they should be aware of? Is that well, actually, one of the tools that I use is actually the eight domains of wellness. And I'm, I'm sure probably many people are familiar with that SAMHSA product, which really talks about um, the eight domains that uh, are, are a part of people's lives, including a, a financial and uh, spiritual and social and um, educational and um, uh, uh Please vote for some of the emotional, uh, emotional, environmental, financial, intellectual, occupational, physical, social, and spiritual. The, the SAMP stuff. Thank you. Thank you. So that's a that that's a, actually a um, a perfect tool to use as a conversational piece. So I I used that once with an individual, and they were they were actually um, they they want they had a goal, which is it was, it was a social goal to to find a girlfriend. And so we talked about how that might happen, and he couldn't figure out a way, you know, to make that happen. He he was 35. He had, he's not uh, dated, and um, he began to ask me questions about you know how I was able to um, to meet my wife, court my wife, and I I started talking to him simply about you know taking her out for dinner, going out for coffee, all the things that you do in a courtship, and he said I can't afford a girlfriend. And I said you know I, I'm in the employment business, and I think that the way that we're going to have to help help you meet that goal and uh, and get a girlfriend is is to go to work because you're more than much more likely to meet someone in the workforce than you are in this uh, day treatment center. And of course he ended up getting a girlfriend, but his his need for the girlfriend at that point became greater than his fear of losing his benefit. So delving into you know one of the verticals of finding work, AJ asks, uh, do you have any specific strategies for helping uh, get your foot in the door with employers? Well, um, there's a number of strategies that I use, mostly all centered around the concept of social capital. And so I have a great deal of uh, contacts. I know a lot of people from being in this business for a, a long time. However, all of my contacts are not good enough. And so um, I encourage uh, teams of people 
Um, I worked, I happened to work in a day treatment uh, program uh, slash, it was a, actually a personalized recovery oriented uh, uh, services program. And um, it's, a, it's a little step up from day treatment. And actually, it's a big step up from day treatment. And uh, there were people on my team, nurses and uh, frontline staff and uh, record keeping and um, other clinicians. And I simply asked them, you know, I can't do it all. I know you all have contacts that I don't have contacts. So what I'd like like to do is this. When somebody comes to me and say they, they have a job or want a job in retail, I'm going to send you out an email and I'm going to say, hey, look at, do you know, or John Smith is looking for a job retail. Does anyone know um, a person that um, in your church, synagogue, neighbor, um, is a relative, a family member uh, that is a manager, a a valued employee is an assistant manager who works in human services, anyone um, who works in retail, if you do contact. And so as a result of that method, I was able to secure other people um, and secure their contacts. So, so first time I did that, actually, I had a nurse um, tell me that her, her son was actually um, a human resource officer for Target. I said, wow, I, you know, I don't have a contact at Target. And uh, she said, well, you know, um, I'll talk to my son. And she was able to talk to her son. And um, that was my end. I got talking to her, um, got connected with her son. And uh, as a result, uh, the gentleman interviewed for a position and got a job target. It wasn't my contact. It wasn't my connection with an employer. It was the team um, rallying around the idea and the concept of employment and then moving forward um, with that contact to me. So that would be a much easier handoff than me going cold calling. Uh, there's many more contacts that um, everyone has. And that woman, by the way, she became a big cheerleader on the employment team. Um, she had no experience with employment prior to that. But for those of you that are on the call that are employment specialists, you know that when you get someone a job, it's like the big day or it's like scoring a touchdown. You want to spike the football. I mean, it's just a big celebration. And she got to experience that. So she was forever on the employment team after that. I'd, I'd, I'd go home at night and find three texts from her saying, oh, I was, you know, at the 7-Eleven on the way home and I saw that there was a help wanted sign. So, yeah, I think uh, using social capital is, um, is the way to go. If you are looking at more specific ways um, that you have to do that cold calling, that's a whole nother question. And I could, I could go into that if people like. You know, as I've done these conversations with different people, it seems like this process of building real, using those relationships, it, it comes up every time. And that it's a, a process that takes time, that it's not overnight. But as, as you progress in the role, uh, that those relationships become stronger and that you have to, you know, continue to build them the whole time. Uh, Jason asked, asked a different questions about online applications. And Jason asked, do you have strategies for navigating the online application process without getting lost in the shuffle? That is a great question. And that is actually sort of dovetails with this whole social capital uh, because some of those, well, actually those those questionnaires are really designed to weed people out. And so I was having some difficulty with a, um, with a particular Walmart. And I said, you know what? Anyone I'm sending through this portal is not finding work. They're not getting callbacks. And so I need to do something different. And I, I actually began uh, a relationship with the manager of, of a, the nearest uh, Walmart. And I had uh, took him out for lunch and uh, talked a little bit about what I did. And, you know, I always saw ads for, for Walmart. And I said, you know, you've got good candidates. They just can't get through your 
screening process. And uh, as I began to know him and, and, and establish this relationship with him, at some point he just said to me, you know what, let's, uh, if, if you really think you've got a strong candidate and they're not getting through, just send them directly to me. So that's the value of social capital, that you can actually, because you know somebody, you can circumvent those types of online. Because let's face it, a lot of the people that we work with don't have a chance when it comes to those online applications because, again, they are all targeted to weed people out. And so whenever you're having some difficulty in, uh, on those, with those particular online, um, online entities, I would, I would strongly suggest that you, you make a, a, a personal uh, plea and uh, appointment with the manager of the store and uh, talk about ways uh, that uh, might, you might be able to circumvent that, or at least just you know start with a simple um, introducing yourself and uh, and uh, learning as much as you can about that individual and starting to form relationships. Because in the end, you know the the idea of social capital is that um, most of the general population find their work through social capital. Uh, many many jobs are not even on online anymore. Um, because a lot of them are, especially in the today's economy, they just want people right away. And so it's really important to, um, to get out there and to, 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 to get to know people because um, there's a, uh, that, that quote, hidden job market, um, there's many, many jobs that get taken that way. And if you aren't in the social capital business, you just don't know um, those jobs. I'll give you an example. My last three uh, jobs have not come about uh, as a result of me looking online. Uh, they've come about as people telling me, hey, you know, there's a job uh, that uh, they're looking for this. And um, uh, it uh, gave me a greater shot at the job. Certainly doesn't guarantee you the job, but it, it, uh, those are, they weren't even promoted the jobs. Or, and so I would have never even known that those jobs existed. Including yeah, you know, it, you know, it seems like you're, you're talking a lot about leveraging all the opportunities that you have available to you and, and not ignoring things that may not even look like an opportunity that someone else you know uh, may have may know something that you don't know. And to that end, Austin asks, uh, how do you establish a collaborative relationship as an IPS agency uh, with vocational rehabilitation who provide the traditional supported employment? That's a great question. Um, there have been some states that have done that better than others. Um, and I think it's those um, those uh, VR agencies that are open to some of the IPS principles, which um, let's just talk about one of them, which is rapid employment. And we know that the VR agencies tend to be a little slower. But some of the ones that have that have said yes, you know, we're we're going to adopt that as our as a principle of our own. It's much easier to um, form a relationship because you have that in common. I do know from personal experience working with um, OVR and working, uh, not myself working for OVR, but working with them as an organization, that uh, many times um, they're open to working with organizations if you can accomplish something that they can't in a more timely fashion. You'll still have to wait for them to get through their assessment process and their waiting list, things like that. But if you can supply for, of theirs and, and um, get it done quickly, um, they're more apt to um, form relationships with you. And again, even with somebody with OVR, I mean, it's, develop, it's about developing relationships with the individual counselors. So they'll be thinking about you. So you really need to get out. You need to um, wine and dine people. All right. Thank you. Uh, Pauline writes, yeah. our clients may need a supportive coach at the workplace from time to time uh, to help with issues, but they do not want that support. 
how can we encourage them to agree to support at, uh, to some support you know from time to time and, and at the second point so that it's agreeing to the support and the second question is uh, what should be included in a brochure you give to employers as you're trying to recruit them to you know to be to work with you as a provider okay so two different so things let's here with the um with the latter question um and i get this question quite a bit in terms of uh like what do you put on brochures or and, and any kind of marketing material so when i was doing some direct service um it certainly wasn't to our um it wasn't it wasn't to the person's ad- advantage to have my um main number on that card um, or on that uh, brochure because it was Evelyn Brando, Evelyn Branded Mental Health Center. And so I was breaking their confidentiality just by having the employer call me back. So we decided to have a very generic-looking um, uh, business card with my, my cell phone. And then our, our, um, our brochures were all um, – they tended to be a bit, bit vague, but they were very – um, detailed about how we could actually help um, businesses find high quality people. So uh, they would be interested enough for us to at least sit down and for, for me to explain the services. It really wasn't about hiding anything. It was more about putting um, something on the um, things on the um, brochure or the flyer that um, would would really um, get people's attention so that we could at least have a phone call. Because I you you when you, when you have the phone call or when you actually have a meeting you really have the opportunity to change people and to be more persuasive when you have it um everything on your brochure um it can easily just be thrown in the garbage and so um i i lead with less so before you move on to the other parts would you say the purpose of the brochure is just to help you know mold people what they're creating it for is to get them to have the conversation with you you know is it to get them to make that the would, call is that the best purpose yeah well that's the that's one of the purposes but the other purpose is to draw a parallel between what they need and what offer and then if you're done with that you know on to the second part which was for people who you know Pauline knows needs help, but they don't want to accept help. How can you get them to to work? Yeah, so, you know, here's the thing. I think that uh, on on many occasions, um, because I've seen this a number of times as well, um, you have a a particular person that feels like they even um, maybe have had job coaching in the past and they feel like, this is a new job, I don't really need it, and or I've had a job coach for a while and now I don't need it. Um, and so there's a really there's a different perception. Um, they have a different perception of themselves than um, than what's your perception. And while we all want to be very person centered, um, we're both wanting success. We both have that as a goal. We want people to be successful in the workforce. So I, um, many times, you know, I, I could talk with them about the benefits of having that person there, but oftentimes I've had to um, let them sort of experience um, sort of what would naturally occur if someone was there and sometimes that would that would mean that they lost their job um and then we'd have an opportunity to talk about it i think you know in our field we often um are try to to make things as as uh, we're very risk aversive in other words um we don't really uh we don't take chances and, 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 and i think that's because we're caretakers and we want to you know make sure that people are taken care of but sometimes people want to go it alone and um, as even it is, we could sit back and say, you know, I know this person isn't going to do well without a job coach. Sometimes people need to experience that failure in order to um, be able to reach out and um, move forward. I know that's a tough answer. Um, I wish I could give you a better answer than that, but that's 
what my experience tells me. But do you have a phrase you say to someone who, you know, you're, you're kind of letting them go knowing that they want to take that risk on their own so they know it's safe to come back, you know, when they decide they do Yeah, need I mean, yeah, of course. Yeah, there's always, you know, um, I, 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 I certainly always having to do with sort of respecting what your wishes are and, uh, you know, I really wish you the best. I just, I want you to know that I'm there for you no matter what happens and no matter, I'm wishing you the best. Um, and mm-hmm. if, um, if you need me later on, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'd love to call you in a week or two to see how you're doing. Yeah. Setting, setting up a conversation point for the future, leaving it open. Yeah. Um, Michael asked a really interesting question. He says, have there been any attempts to adapt motivational strategies used in other domains? For example, losing weight, quitting smoking, et cetera, to motivate people to consider uh, pursuit of work. Are there any lessons here for us? You know, I haven't seen a lot of that, but I, I've um, I, I give a lot of keynotes, and um, in 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 a number of my keynotes, I talk to people about um, what psychologists call the law of reversibility, which is this concept that. Um, you act uh, in a, a certain way, and you'll and you you your feelings will follow. Um, and um, a lot of times we're under the influence of our feelings, and then we act in a certain way. So if we feel scared, if we've got an interview and we feel uh, afraid and we're anxious, we're liable to act anxious. Um, and um, the law of reversibility says, hey, you know, if you act um, confident, uh, eventually your feelings will follow your actions and will and you'll start acting confidently and these are these are things that major um consultants uh, major motivational speakers the simple theories that people talk about um in terms of losing weight in terms of uh, getting ahead in the workforce i mean i've heard many uh, major motivational speakers um, talk with people about this and, and get to pe- uh, have people see themselves a little bit differently. And yet we don't do that in our field. And, and, and these athletes and, and, and Hollywood stars, they're paying a, a ton of money to these people for their personal coaching. And these are, I think, strategies that we, if they're good enough for, for football stars and they're good enough for athletes and uh, to improve their performance, they're certainly good enough for us to be talking more about with the people. Right. Uh, changing gears a little bit from the motivation, Allison asks, what is your suggestion for clients that consistently quit jobs after only two to four weeks of employment? So um, let me tell you, first of all, David, these are great questions. <laughs> you guys are <laughs> great. Um, so that's, uh, that is a, is a good question as well. And, um, you know, occasionally I've had uh, a number of people that I've gotten jobs for and um, just didn't work out for whatever reason. But um, that... <laughs> Again, I, I, I sort of fall back, and this is something that I've done over the course of my time um, being in the field, is um, I've, I begin to have conversations with people around the topic of, you know, I've noticed that this seems to be a pattern of, you know, every two to four weeks, you, you, you'll, you'll quit, and within two to four weeks, you'll quit the job. And so the conversation becomes about um, anxiety in the workforce, and that within two to four weeks, um, is when you first start a job, especially if it's a job that maybe you haven't had in a while, and you start a job, um, the first four weeks are very difficult because you're not used to it. It's not a part of your routine. You're starting to feel out the workforce. You're starting to feel, um, you know, what you, you don't know anything about the, the job. You don't know anything about the people. There's this ac- extra um, anxiety that increases. And, and a lot of times, 
um, for people with mental illness, it actually exacerbates people's symptoms. And so it's a very uncomfortable uh, experience. And I prepare people with, uh, with this information beforehand to let them know that you're going to feel a little increased anxiety when you start. However, after four or five weeks, this is going to become routine, just like today is routine, that in five, six weeks, this is going to be routine for you. So what is it, what can we do to help you get through those, uh, th those first uh, two to four weeks and when you're going to feel you're at your most anxious? Because you're capable of doing this job. I know you can do it. I can see you doing it. But those first four weeks are going to be more difficult than week five, six, seven, and eight and, and after that. So what are some strategies that we can um, work on together to get you through those, um, those uh, particular feelings that you're going to have? It's really about preparing people ahead of time for those. Just going down to the next question, you have, you've had so many great answers. I, I want to get to as many of these as I can. Um, Glenn sure. asks, are you aware of any funding available for temporary wages during an apprenticeship? Uh, employment assistance and supportive employment funding do not provide for this aspect of job. And, and I can broaden it to just yeah. training in general too. I yeah, um, I'm not aware of any specific um, training uh, um, or any specific um, pots of money available. Um, I do know that um, different states, for example, New York has a, 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 especially in the city, they tend to work with a, a lot of unions and um, they're able to um, have a, a pot of money that can actually help people in clubhouses and um, who um, are actually working with IPS um, organizations to, to find work and to um, uh, take part of uh, training and actually get paid while they're doing it. But it really varies um, state to state. I really wouldn't want to um, answer that and um, because the answer is, is, is actually so varied because it's it's different from state to state. Okay. You know, and, and I don't I'll know say of any for... federal. Go ahead. I, I've said I, I don't know of any federal funding. Yeah. I was going to say, for Glenn, if you email Cyrehab, P-S-Y-R-E-H at B-U dot E-D-U, we can try to connect you with whoever in your state who might be able to answer that for you. Uh, Joshua asks, uh, how do you get companies small areas to assist with jobs? You know, kind of this, this rule, creation mm -hmm. for, you know, the rule work. You know, it's um, that, that's another good question, and it's um, it's a question that I've heard oftentimes, um, that, that the needs of um, the workforce in rural uh, America are much different than um, where you're in a city and you have a greater number of of, of uh, companies. So, and, and also the factor of people know everybody in town, and so you might um, uh, the, the people that you are um, working with already might be known and might have a reputation. And so, again, it just sort of goes back to um, relationships, and it's much easier to um, in in smaller communities to. To, to be a part of the community. So if if you are an employment specialist, you should really be in on involved with their local chamber of commerce, with uh, the local business association. Um, there's a small town um, where I live. Um, um, while I'm from Rochester, New York, there's uh, some in, in Monroe County. There are some smaller towns, and I always made it a point to find out um, what the local business association was. So. For like Hemlock, New York, there was a there's there was like a Main Street uh, Business Association, and I made sure that uh, they knew who I was, and um, I was able to um, uh, to um, get to know the employers um, in that very small town. Um, and go to, to to the holiday parties and things like that, and and get to know them in a um, a less formal way, um, and that they could uh, look at me as a resource. And then also um, being involved with um, local governments like uh, the county government because they know. 
the jobs that are coming. Uh, a lot of times they're trying to recruit businesses to their area. And so um, being on different committees that um, helping to attract businesses would give you a leg up as well. Um, the next question comes from Richard, and he just wants to hear your thoughts on how to handle cold calling. I'm guessing this is around a recruiting employer. Yeah. Honestly, I try to avoid cold calling as much as possible. Um, it doesn't really lead. To, for me, it's never led uh, too much. Um, I haven't done it. Um, now, there might be a time that I'm um, uh, cold calling. I might go to, um, I don't know, a, a, a place that I do business with and might start a conversation, um, but it's always targeted in that way. In other, in other words, I'm, I am, if, I, if, I would just say that my cold calling is always limited to people that I'm doing business with. Um, so if I'm in a CVS I, and I shop at CVS or I have prescriptions at CVS, I would just have a general conversation with uh, people on the floor or um, with the people behind the counter. And um, if I um, have, um, I'm picking up a, 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 another product maybe that I special ordered for some from someplace, um, or I'm, I'm at the FedEx office picking up a package because they missed me at home, um, I, I can have conversations like that. So they know I'm a customer. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm something more than just a cold caller. I'm a customer as well. You know, it, it kind of leads me to the question uh, of, in your experience in terms of efforts of building that network of employers, are there any sort of activities that have disproportionately successful in building that network? Did you understand what I'm getting at? In terms of the time um, you invest, what what's the best way to invest your time in building that network? Coffee. Just bringing <laughs> coffee to people. Honestly, I mean, I worked in a hospital. I used to take the the donuts and the coffee that the doctors brought and take it out in the community with me. I know the people that I worked with didn't like it, but, you know, if the doctor brought in a, a, a dozen donuts and a 12 you know, a, 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 a box of coffee I'd take and I'd be running with it to uh, on the Dollar Tree or wherever and say, hey, you know, I'd love to bring these, uh, this to you guys. I've, I've, uh, you know, I've been here many times myself shopping and uh, this is what I do and those kinds of things, you know. And then learning as much as you can about um, about the business. You know, many times I'd sit and have conversations with people, and learn, especially, the, especially businesses that are not, um, that tend to be small business. Really talking to people about why they, how they got into that business. What was it that, because people love to talk about themselves, and I give them the opportunity to do to do that, especially people in small business, because they have a lot of pride, and they put a lot of work into their business. And I'm always interested in, I'm just having a natural curiosity about, um, you know, how they got into the business, and and what is it that they look for in in, in an employee. I mean. Um, is it is it the, just that they just need a body, or is it a, a, is it a special uh, type of person that they need? And if so, I could you know I would be more attuned to that. And uh, people give you lots of information when you're showing interest in what they're doing. And actually, you can you can you know even in their office, you know you can um, you can see what's on their walls and what, what what's important. So up here in Rochester. A lot of times I would go to um, I would go to um, a, a, a business person's office and uh, I'd find their about their Buffalo Bill fan. I know you folks probably feel sorry for us, but it's it's a, it's a conversation starter, and uh, we would um, we'd have conversations about the Buffalo Bills. And uh, I sometimes I'd, I'd, I'd you know in the course of our relationship I I text them and say hey you know did you hear that uh, I don't know uh, Jim Kelly's on going to retire or whatever you know just some little news just to keep the relationship going. Do you find yourself more successful working with small businesses or is the structure that large and you know 
big retail employers and the larger employers easier to work? Actually, I always found it a little easier with um, with small businesses because um, they're they're more likely to take a chance on people. And they don't have to a- answer to corporate bo- bosses or anything like that. So it was it was usually much easier to work with a small business. And when I'm talking small business, I'm talking a business of uh, 25 uh, to 50 people or less. Um, How can we empower families to take a greater role in helping their loved ones uh, move towards employment? That's a great question. Um, You know, families play a very important part in a person's desire to go back to work. Um, Many times families are just as afraid for that individual um, in terms of them losing their um, social security check and or just not being able to make it. So there's a, there's some real sincere desire to protect people. And so it's about um, talking with families about uh, the dignity of risk and to let people, let the family know that these are, here are the work incentives. This is how it's going to impact um, your son, daughter, loved one. Um, and um, really letting families, um, when, when, when the person is open to it, you don't want to talk with a family um, until you get that permission. And then uh, one of the best ways to help families realize the potential of, of their own loved one is to involve peers. Um, because peers uh, can come in and tell the story and share with the family um, how they were able to do it and how they were able to overcome odds and are now gainfully employed. Their story um, is a powerful motivator um, in ha- having families look at things a little bit differently. I have a, a mantra that I use that it was actually a, a friend of mine, this mantra, who's just, I, I asked him one day because he was so good at sales. And I said, you know, how do you do what you do? And he, he, he told me, he said, facts tell and stories sell. I said, wow, that's I said, that's your, that's your mantra? And he said, yeah. I said, then text that to me because I'll forget it. And um, the more I began to think about it, the more it really had a place for us in, the, in our business because um, I could talk about the, the great work incentives to families all day long, but it's the stories of individuals that have been able to, to actually make it that are, are the final selling point that um, – that people get and really resonate with people. You know, you brought up this idea of peers. Linda asked this question, right? I've been a peer in for three months now, and their intent is to hire me, and I've already filled out the HR application. I want to be a vocational peer specialist part-time, but all the jobs I see are full-time. And I've had other interviews, but nothing right now. Uh, I've had other job interviews and nothing out as an official uh, job offer, and she finds it very hard. She asked, what can I do? And you know about the certified uh, certificate certificate in vocational peer support that the Center for Psych Rehab. So uh, that last part, I'll, I'll, I'll set aside for now. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you take that one. Um, but I will say this: that um, depending upon the state, of course, um, uh, many many states have um, are starting to have um, peer specialists embedded in their IPS team or the supported employment team. Um, uh, depending depending upon the state, um, depends really uh, on the the, the uh, how far how, how far this is, has gone. But uh, I know that there have been um, national discussions about the importance of having uh, a, a peer on the uh, team. Now the question of full or part time is um, is an interesting one because um, you know for the longest time we saw uh, many jobs uh, for peers. They were tended to be part time. Um, as a way to help people 
keep both social sec- uh, their social security in a lot of cases um and um also be able to to return to work but the over the over the course of the last probably 4 or 5 years i've really seen a uh, a strong move towards um what you're unfortunately seeing or fortunately for for people that want to work full time is is full time jobs for people that actually pay um a significant um, a, 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 a living wage and um so i would encourage you to think about um and talk with um and a benefits counselor about the risk of of working full time um if you think you can do it um then the only question for you is am i going to lose my benefits and if so um how long if if i if i lose the job after 6 9 months 12 months 15 months um can I get right back on my benefits? So those are questions that you're going to want to ask the benefits counselor. If it is a matter that you think you just just actually can't work right now um, full time, then that's a totally different um, that's a totally different question. But um, if you do think that you can and you're just a, a little timid because of you want to stay on on benefits, I'd encourage you to talk with a benefits counselor who can actually talk very specifically about your situation and how, in many cases. Um, you would be able to, um, if you lost the job, you're safe. Um, but I, I, you know, I, without the details, I, I would encourage you to talk specifically to a benefits counselor in your area. Now, you know, you bring up this uh, point that I, I, it's been an underlying thing that kind of carried on amongst the other conversations. People who are stuck in part-time because they don't want to, you know, they don't want to bring up the conversation to move beyond that because there's this new permanent part and they could really, yeah. you know, return to work, but they're, they're choosing not to. How do you how do you start that conversation who, with someone who doesn't ready to even have that? Well, um, first, I want to let everybody in the audience know that um, Social Security actually just finished a um, research project, a bond project, where they did a study of people, um, uh, as, as many people on, on the phone call um, in the webinar know, that with the SSD um, work incentives um, during the extended period of eligibility um, section, um, there, people face a cliff, basically, and this is why a lot of people stay part-time, because at, uh, at the SGA level, which is substantial gainful activity level, um, uh, during the EPE period, um, the, uh, the amount is 1190 to, to pay attention to. So if you make $1,190 um, for a month, you don't get your check the following month. If you make $1,189.99, you actually get your entire SSD check. So people face this cliff. And so this uh, this bond project was all about taking a look at people um, and um, comparing two groups. Um, one group was uh, uh, kept in that same box of, you know, you, you earn $1,190 and you, you just don't get your benefits. And the other group was um, taking a look at, at and, and had a different approach. So at that $1,190 level, um, after anything up after that, they were able to keep $2 for every, uh, or yeah, for every um, $2 they earned, $1 would be taken away. So um it was a lot like sort of the SSI formula. So people could gradually wean themselves off rather than face this cliff. And uh, next Wednesday on the 12th, actually there's a webinar that uh, they're gonna be talking about um, um, what this study means, what happened. And um, I think it could mean some really good things because I think, I think what we're gonna see is that with this extra work incentive that allow people to gracefully exit uh, Social Security without that, uh, that cliff, 
I think uh, I think the data is going to show us that a lot of people left Social Security that were able to uh, to to really uh, take this uh, um, to be a part of this bond project in that particular group. Thank you, Lynn. Um, so let's go on to here in this one uh, about peers again. Is how can we use peers to effectively support individuals who are on the fence? Yeah. So you know it's that mantra again that that, that the stories tell uh, stories tell um, because um, peers. Our, our folks, and, and by the way, I'm a peer as well. I, I put that in my bio or not, but um, um, talking with people that have similar experience and that have gone through similar things um, really help people to trust that person um, at a deeper level. And so, and that this is one thing that we've seen on supportive employment teams that have brought in peers, that even with people that have said yes to employment that might have a tendency to drop out, um, peers are able to sort of bring that back in and say, you know what? I experienced that same thing. I gave up and um, actually, I actually came back because I found that, you know, that the, that the fight for um, employment was actually worth it. And that, you know what, I experienced a lot of rejection when I was looking for work. Um, and after, uh, at the time, it was, uh, it was uncomfortable. I didn't like it. But I've got to tell you, it's, it was all worth it because here I am now and this is my position and um, this is where um, work is I, I've actually I've discovered what what work can actually be, um, but I had to go through it. I had to go through some of the tough times, and um, I've made it to the other side. And that's a powerful testimony uh, to people. So I, that, that's the number one way that I um, have utilized peers and have been utilized myself. Um, Raphael asks, uh, what is the best way to implement the IPS model uh in conjunction with the clubhouse? Well, um, the clubhouse model is obviously much different um, because everything is done um, with the clubhouse model. It's um, you've, you have, you know, everything is uh, decided upon by all its members. So the first thing you'd have to do is talk with the members to make sure that there's buy-in for this IPS uh, supportive employment. Um, if there isn't, then you're, you know, you're sort of going against the the what the members want. So the first step is just talking with members about um, you know, what IPS is and explaining it and, and talking about the fact that it's a, it's a great way for people to actually find employment. In fact, it's the best way. It's research. We know that it's um, the um, number one way that people find employment and can actually make employment easier um, uh, as a way to, um, to find employment. Um, and then um, talking with um, uh, c continuing that dialogue with uh, clubhouse members. Um, I don't think that they um, are uh, ideologically different than one another. Um, you know, in, in clubhouses, you also have um, places that already exist that the, you have the, uh, the sort of the uh, sort of the six-month temporary sites and uh, those types of things. But I, I, I think that. Um, the ideology is is the same, so I don't think that there would be much difficulty in getting both um, um, to work in concert with one another. You know, our, our time is running short, so I'm, what I'm going to do is um, there are some questions that have a lot of overlap, and so I'm going to try to create a, a giant question, and and it's really a question about motivation, and it's people who lack the motivation to get started and how to engage them, whether it's you know high school students, young adults. Uh, people later in their careers. How do you motivate people to begin the job search, and and does it vary by the age? And if if so, what what do you how do you approach it? Big question here. Well, the the first thing is is to recognize that I don't think it's a it's a matter of a lack of motivation. Um, I think that it's a matter of 
not being activated in the right way. So just to give you an idea of how this plays out um, in my own life. So seven years ago, I was 40 pounds, 40, 50 pounds heavier than I am today. And um, I was extremely motivated to um, lose weight. I, I desperately wanted to lose weight um, for a number of years. And yet I would act in ways that were counterproductive to me um, losing weight. Didn't mean I was not uh, motivated. I definitely was motivated. You ask any person that's overweight, they want to lose the weight. Uh, they just haven't been able to activate it or found a way that works for them. And so one of the things that worked for me, uh, and, and prior to this, again, having wanted to, to lose weight for a long time, um, you know, I would join gyms at the as a New Year's resolution, and uh, three weeks later, I'm on the couch uh, getting a gym membership and uh, eating a bag of Cheetos. Um, however, uh, I had joined many gyms in the past that just weren't successful. Until I joined a gym that um, really took an extra effort with me to support me. So it's not like I signed up for the for the gym and um, they uh, gave up on me, because many places will. Um, but they took the extra time with They found out what interested me, and actually it wasn't exercise. They found out that um, I actually liked um, the, uh, the sauna that they had, and they had a, the whirlpool. And they said, you know, why don't we – we know you don't like to exercise because you've made it clear to us. Uh, why don't we sort of bring these things together – so you exercise for 20 minutes and we'll, we'll have, um, make sure that there's time for you to spend time in the, in the, in the world um, or in the sauna. And, um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll buy you a smoothie after um, and get, get you used to some healthy foods and you can get your vegetables that way even though you don't like vegetables. And, so it, and then if, I, if I'd missed a couple of times, they'd actually call me and say, hey, you know, do you need a ride? How can we get you here? So it's that extra support. And really, um, not sort of labeling me with, uh, well, you're just not motivated. You must, you must not care. Um, I think that's the first step. And everybody has some different ways. So what worked for me might not work for someone else. So paying close attention and getting to know a person um, in a very personal way, so you know what would work for them. It's, it's a very, it's much more complicated than just saying, well, this is the way to motivate. This is, this is the way um, to get people motivated. It's really about how do you get people activated. Great. But I want to thank you, David, very much for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, thank you, Lynn. It's three o'clock and I want to thank you too for for answering all these questions. I I feel bad that we couldn't get to everyone. Uh, And thank you everyone today for attending this uh, Ask Me Anything session. The next Ask Me Anything webinar uh, is with our very own Debbie Nicolelis. Thank you and we look forward to having you join us again. Have a great day, Lynn, and very grateful for your time. Bye-bye.